0: Welcome. This is Kristen Jock, a uh, real estate associate broker with Corcoran Group here in Williamsburg. I guess is your office. Mm-hmm. Hello, Kristen. How are you? Hi,
1: Sydney. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Uh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for uh, taking time out of your busy schedule because I know you have a lot of sales and stuff lined up, and a lot of people you need to meet. Um, but I really appreciate you coming in today to uh, spend some time talking about real estate. And one of the things I'd like to do is just um, have you share with us um, some things that you've learned uh, over the years um, dealing in real estate. Um, you know, as a conscious capitalist, our concern is primarily to help people figure out ways to create wealth. And uh, real estate seems to be an opportunity or a means for them to do that. So I'd like you to share with us uh, some ways uh, people could use real estate. But before we do that... Can you um, just give me an idea of what uh, a career in real estate might look like if I wanted to pursue a career? Because in New York, I mean, you make millions, like, you know, you can make a million dollars in real estate, like, you know, overnight. You
1: can. Yeah. But so that's it's, not the average. That no, is not the
0: average. But, 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 but what do you do? What's the first step? If you want to become, if you want to get into the real estate field in New York, what's the first thing you would do?
1: So there is a course that you have to take. Um, it generally takes about a week to two weeks depending how much time you can devote to it if you're uh, free schedule and you can go Monday through Friday. Um, after that two week time period you would then take, you would then take an exam in the class and if you pass that exam you would then sign up for the state exam. Uh, so after you take the state exam, you would then become licensed, as you know, according to uh, you passing all of those requirements. Licensed
0: uh, to do what? That's the all right, That for license.
1: Thing. Yeah. So your licensing would be for a real estate real estate salesperson. That's what you start off in this business, um, and then after two years with a certain amount of experience, you would then uh, fill out uh, showing what sales, what rentals, um, any leasing that you've done. Um, and demonstrate that to the state, and then upon which they determine that you have enough experience, you can then go through a similar process as the first time, uh, except it would be for uh, the broker's course. Um, And then you would take the broker's exam uh, at the school and then with the state. And upon passing all of that, you would then become a licensed real estate broker. Um, And basically what that means is that you can now operate on your own, independently. Um, You could start your own brokerage. Uh, you could work as an individual agent, um, and you could then still work under another brokerage and be called what's an associate broker, uh, which is what I am. So, I have the full authority to, to work on my own, but I choose to hold my license under a corporation. Wow. Um So, basically, the reasoning sometimes is what your goals are, right? So, with any business, you say, what are my goals? For me, at least after the first couple of years in the business, I was doing well. I knew that I wasn't a person that wanted to sit in the office and hire people and manage people. I wanted to be out there doing it. Um, And that's how I understood owning a brokerage would be. Uh, It would very much be behind the scenes and managing uh, other agents. Um, And it's not the easiest business. There's a very high turnover rate. Um, So I knew that I didn't want to do that, but I did want the freedom to be able to do that at a later date. So I chose to get my broker's license. Um, and there's also some additional advantages to it. So, obviously, it's it looks better for you to sort of continue seeking higher education and continuing education in your field. Um, it opens you up to other possibilities um, if you decide to, you know, maybe go, go and work for a hedge fund, for example. Um, and then... Uh, Also, it provides different opportunities. So, for example, if you wanted to start a team, which would essentially be like having your own little brokerage within a larger company, such as Corcoran, you could then hire people to work underneath you. But in order to do that you would need to be an associate broker. Okay, so
0: so I mentioned that as a real estate salesperson, you can make a million dollars uh, in New York, and you said- Absolutely, yeah, you, you can make
1: that on one sale. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: um, but you said that's not the average. So for someone thinking about doing real estate, what is a realistic expectation of what um, they might make in their first year of sales? And then what qualities, traits, attributes, do successful, you know, real estate salespeople have, um, you know, that kind of thing.
1: I mean, the first thing that always comes to my mind is that you absolutely have to be somebody that can manage yourself. If you're somebody who needs to be told what tasks to be doing, to get up in the morning, to work however many hours you need to work and to go after the business, um, then you're not gonna be good in this field. Mm -hmm. But if you are able to do all those things, then you should be successful. You may stumble in the beginning as anybody would, Mm Um, but eventually you can get there Um, and it's funny that you asked me this actually because I've had quite a few friends who have gotten into the business in the last few years and you know I see them struggling Um, they're coming in at different times of the market so for example I came into the market in 2011 which was when the market was just starting to kind of tick up right from the last recession and uh, now people are coming in and it's a totally different ballgame so For me, I I think that unless you have a very, very large savings, the way to get started in this business is by doing a little bit of everything. So if you're going to do strictly sales, you have to understand that from the time that you start, it may be a year before you close your first sale. If you're lucky, it may be longer. Um, So for my first year in the business, I concentrated solely on rentals. And I think that it served me well because it helped to teach me the business from the ground up. So I understand from a landlord's perspective. I understand from a tenant's perspective. It enables me to do a wide variety of different types of transactions. So I've sold single families, multifamilies, condos, co-ops, commercial buildings, mixed use, and I'm able to understand uh, the financial structure and, and how to value an asset like that from understanding the very basics, which is the, the rental side of it. Um, And so the reason that I think a lot of people are struggling now coming into the industry is that the rental market, quite frankly, fell off a cliff in 2015. And in a lot of neighborhoods, the rents have been going down um, or just plateauing.
0: The rental market fell off the cliff. Is that because of all of the tremendous building that's been done in Brooklyn? And so now there's an oversupply?
1: Sure. Absolutely. So there's there's been a significant amount of construction, not everywhere. You know, there's obviously certain areas that are landmarked and and not they haven't had zoning changes or things like that. So there's not as much turnover or they're just more stable uh, neighborhoods. But certainly throughout Brooklyn, which is where I operate the majority of my business, um, you have the most new uh, the most development going on in the city in northern Brooklyn right now. So in areas like Bushwick, which is actually where I live. Um, so you're seeing an oversupply of certain types of inventory, um, so everybody seems to be kind of gearing it towards a certain type of renter, uh, somebody who has disposable income, um, and can pay a a higher, uh, price for the rent, um, and so when you have too much uh, of the supply in that specific area, um, inevitably it's going to slow down, right? And also I think just because the prices went up so quickly, a lot of people who maybe would have moved every year stopped doing that. The incentive wasn't there for them to keep moving because every time they moved, it would be more and more expensive. So they might start to sit still. Um, So it's been harder to move inventory because of that. Um, And, uh, you know, in addition, the prices of properties, especially in the commercial spectrum, have gotten so high that they really relied the prices that they paid for these buildings really relied on them getting what that rent was in 2015 so now in 2018 they're not getting that anymore they haven't been getting that for some time so now the commonplace thing is that you could see uh, a landlord or a management company offering anywhere from two to three months of concession for a renter to move in so when That's you s-
0: commercial or even so, residential? well,
1: commercial buildings is anything uh, six units or more oh, in okay. New York I got City. You, I got you. Um, but it can be composed of uh, you know a mixed use situation mm-hmm. where it's a, a store plus rental apartments. Um, so, wow, that's interesting. It's kind of unfortunate for
0: people who happen to be um, property owners in New York. So, uh, so, so. And at I, the
1: same time, all the expenses are going up, right? So right, it's not exactly. getting cheaper. Yeah, right. For example, we just had the tax legislation passed in which now less of your real estate taxes are going to be able to be written off. Right. So there's definitely, the expenses keep rising, and, and unfortunately the incomes and the rents are not.
0: Right. That's interesting. So, all right, so that, actually, you, you, so that allows us to segue into um, your view of the market, which is um, where I'd like to go now. Um, but you said part of one's success could be when they come into the market. So if you're thinking about doing this, you might want to look and see where the market is um, to kind of get an assessment. I guess opportunities in the real estate market in a place like New York is cyclical. Um, there are times Absolutely. when it's good to be in and then times when you might want to say, hold, you know, hold off until things worked and markets worked Supplies consumed or supplies absorbed, and all that kind of stuff. All right. So, so now, what is your view? Like you said, the market dropped or whatever fell off a cliff for rentals. Um, what is your view of the market, the real estate market generally, um, from the perspective of possibly investing, buying a home? Um, would you, in this market, go out and um, buy?
1: So it's funny that you asked me that because I'm actually pre-approved right now. Been looking for a property, you know, kind of uh, not fully committed to buying something because I'm also in the process of renovating a property um, that I'm gonna resell. So it's my first sort of project um, to fix up a property. I'm actually converting it from a single family to a two family and reselling it. So my funds are somewhat tied up in that right now. Um, but I, I am pre-approved and looking to purchase something else. I always had the idea of purchasing rental property, obviously. Um, but the prices have gotten so high that, yeah, I'm, I'm going to wait for the right property to come by. I'm not just going to buy anything.
0: So what is the
1: right property? The property where the financials make sense. Mm-hmm. Where you're not strapping yourself so tight that, you know, it's, it's any slight bump in the road is going to cause you to be in a bad situation.
0: So how do you do that analysis? How do you say, okay, this property is right? So you you look at the possible rent,
1: rental income. So you look at the rent roll, Yeah. Um, And this is like part of your process. Uh, You're asking how do people go through the process of investing in real estate. Mm. So part of that is trying to value the asset, and either you can look to a broker to sort of advise you on that. Of course, that's Um, what you'd
0: like them to do.
1: Right, absolutely. Um, But then, you know, there are people who are buying 20, 20, 30 buildings a year, so they sort of get the hang of it. And what they're doing is they're looking at the valuation of the building, so they want to look at what the rent roll is, they want to look at what the expenses are. They also want to take into consideration anything that, is unforeseeable so maybe you have a tenant move out maybe you have a vacancy for longer than expected three four months five months six months you want to make sure that it doesn't just make sense financially if if all the pieces all the puzzle pieces are in the right place right you need to assume that something will go wrong so you need to take into consideration that there might be a vacancy you need to take into consideration that your boiler might go or you know, whatever it might be. The roof. So there needs to be wiggle room between what numbers make the building make sense, and then you know what you're going to actually buy it for. So so um,
0: so all right. So what does that look like, though? So let's say hypothetically, let's say I find a building, right? Let's say it's four units to keep everything simple. Um, four unit building. Let's say uh, the average rents are two thousand. So the property generates eight thousand. Um, a month, so that would be eighty ninety six thousand a year in in income. Okay, let's say the property taxes might be, <coughs> pardon me, in New York on that. I don't know, maybe five thousand. You know, I don't know. I'm guessing maybe five thousand or whatever. So that takes us down to ninety one thousand. Um, let's say gas and hot water might be I don't know um, seven or eight thousand. Uh, yeah, so that takes us down to um, uh, eight. Eighty thousand or something, right? Um, let's say miscellaneous maintenance stuff might be another ten thousand. So I'm now I'm down to seventy thousand. Yeah, and so I
1: don't know if we even need to look at it so specifically like that. But basically, what you want to do is you want to figure out what the expenses are. And then, like I said, so add what, a little you, cushion, well, so... when you say
0: the expenses, I mean, and for, the, for a property like that, the only expenses are... But
1: every situation is also going to be different. So if you're buying a building that needs a total renovation, you're going to have to factor in what the renovation cost is going to be. Let
0: me ask you this. Why would someone... Does, in your opinion, based on your experience, does it make sense
1: for someone to buy a building that requires a total renovation? So it makes sense when they don't have other opportunities that are getting them a better rate of return so what you're seeing a majority of in the commercial spectrum before you were seeing as low as four percent rate of return which hey was still much better than what they were getting keeping it in the bank right um but now it's starting to tick up as you know the rental market has softened um you know as there's been a political change and and sort of all the uncertainties that come along with uh, one administration leaving and another coming in, you know, legislation being changed that can affect the markets, particularly with like the tax legislation, New York and California are two markets that are expected to be significantly affected by that. Um, so all those things factor in. So now you're seeing people expecting more so like six to seven percent rate of return but it also depends on the market that you're looking in, the micro market you're looking in. So, for example, if you're going to a place like Park Slope, which is generally thought to be a very stable sort of blue chip uh, neighborhood, you could call it, you're not going to get that. You're not going to get a higher rate of return. You might be more comfortable doing 5%. And, you know, again, this is going to be depending the background that you're coming from, how how many different places you're investing and, you know, what time you're expecting this return, like the life lifetime return on this property. Are you expecting to hold it for 40 years? Are you expecting to pass it to the next generation? So there's going to be different expectations depending on your personal financial makeup. Um, but if you're going into areas that are, you could say, appreciating and gentrifying and all these words that we keep hearing um, where there's considered to be more un- instability, then like you would in the stock market, you expect a, h- a higher rate of return because of the level of risk you're taking on.
0: So so that's interesting. You mentioned gentrification um, and, and um, I guess, Brooklyn. And, you know, New York general, New York City generally, but especially Brooklyn over the past, you know, I don't know, maybe 10 years has seen a significant amount of gentrification. Um, so um, how how do you see development in brooklyn happening you know i don't know do you ever take a minute to say okay this is where we are now these are the trends this is what's going on so this is where we'll be five years from now ten years from now Mm -hmm. and i mean do you ever look at things from that perspective or are you just like who's selling now let me see if i can hook up with them so i can make my commission and all right who's selling now you know are you very into Are you very present, or do you think about the future? So
1: in real estate, we definitely like to look at the markets that are having more turnover. Those are places that generally have more opportunity for us to create business. Um, And it doesn't necessarily mean that we're exploiting it. Um, And I think that when it comes to gentrification, people look at it as more of a microcosm, as what's going on now, as this is like a phenomenon, when in reality I disagree with that. I think that this is something that's been happening. Uh, especially in New York going back uh, since the city started
0: we are about to get into a very serious and heated discussion <laughs> um, so, so, so you
1: haven't noticed in the past several hundred years that neighborhoods have a certain population move in and then that changes over a period of time and new people come in and there's all this migration going on within the city
0: um, yes I have noticed that that happens right. all the time however however <clears throat> However,
1: and um, people being displaced just as they are now. Well,
0: I'm um, well, well, well. I'm not sure we can say that necessarily. Um, Levittown, you've heard of Levittowns, right? Mm-hmm. Um, these were communities that were developed and financed by federal, with with some federal dollars. I don't know whether totally federal dollars, but these were um, middle class residential enclaves that were developed out in the suburbs, right? Um, and because of discriminatory practices certain members of our community weren't allowed to absolutely all right so so i remember yeah i mean there there were times i mean yeah you're right there have always communities have always changed hands right um but um like my my mother and father my parents were the first well not the first they were one of the first black families to move on this street in philly Mm -hmm. right Um, And then um, it was, I think, you know, generally, you know, all white. Um, And then, you know, a few black folks started moving in. And suddenly, um, because black folks moving in, the value of the properties started falling, right? And so my parents probably saw the value of their property fall as more white folks moved out and more black Block folks blusting.
1: moved out. Right.
0: Right. So Right, so, so I agree that I agree with your position that we've always, you know, communities have always changed. And let me ask you this question, Sydney. What's different is that um, when white folks are moving in, the property values go up. There seems to be a, a premium placed on um, the racial. It's ratio interesting that of you say
1: that, do you mind if I cut in? Because of course because actually i think the bigger phenomenon right now is the international investment going on in new york so particularly in manhattan right there is often this talk about these luxury buildings that have gone up that if you go there at night there's no lights on because those people are just parking their money there right you're talking about
0: the uh, you're talking about the money laundering scheme that trump is into
1: i'm not talking about specifically a money laundering scheme i'm just talking about certain Certain forces, as you will, because we're talking about forces, right? Different elements that uh, pressures that can be put on the economics and change communities and change okay. uh, change the demographic. So you
0: see these high rises in Manhattan, the lights are out, and so that's because foreigners have bought them up to park money. Right. And so And that's definitely
1: playing into things like the vacancy rate in Manhattan, which are affecting the rental market and offend, uh, affecting wait, wait, wait,
0: wait! it's all right so it's affecting the. so there are more big vac- there, there are fewer vacancies or more vacancies as a result of these farm farm buyers
1: well there's basically just money being parked and nobody living there um, so space being taken up in an area that doesn't have a lot of space which is driving up the cost of where people actually do live within the city
0: so creating demand For property in Brooklyn. Creating Because they can't afford Manhattan, so they come to Brooklyn and... Creating
1: unaffordability.
0: Creating unaffordability.
1: Well, all right, so... But but going back to what you were saying before, you know, I wanted to ask you, what was the the time frame you were talking about? um, My parents
0: moving into... Right, the story. This was uh, 1946 or
1: so. Right. So that's kind of what I was getting at with what I was saying was that, you know, we like to look at things of like this this most recent wave of gentrification, you could call it, within Brooklyn, for example, um, as being something that's, you know, uniquely happening here. But um, my point was that it's been happening over and over within this city from the beginning of this city in different ways and because of different factors. But it's also outside of that, too. I'm seeing it happening in metropolitan cities across the world. Uh, places that I've traveled to, and I'm seeing the same sort of rhetoric and uh, discussion going on about people getting pushed out, people that have been in the neighborhood for a long time, lack of affordability, things like Airbnb um, creating unaffordability.
0: So, so that's very interesting. Um, you're, you're you're well-traveled. Um. And you've, you've been to quite a few metropolitan cities, and you say you've seen this same kind of situation happen now I was curious and, and and you know what what I'd be curious to know is um so so um all right so i I agree with you that it's been happening forever, you know in this country, right? My thing though is like when I look at it uh, all right so when I look at it um there was a time when. we became urbanized, right? So everybody left the farms and moved to urban centers, right? And so it attracted, you know, like, if you look at some of the housing in Brooklyn or in any major city, right, the first people living in those units were wealthy people. I mean, generally wealthy people, right? And then they needed places for their servants to live, and so they started building less palatial building, you know, housing or whatever. But anyway, so I guess the point I'm trying to make, though, is that... It seems that all right. So so we were very urbanized, right? But then, as black folks migrated from the south and started populating the inner cities, um, it seems that there suddenly became more interest in the suburban area. So those areas started increasing in value as people um, left the urban areas to get away. Well, <laughs> some people say to get away from black folk, but you know I don't know. It could be for whatever reason they moved out to the suburban areas, right? So the f- suburban areas started. Increasing in value, um, and the urban areas started decreasing in value. Um, but then you get to a point where people realize, well, there is a value to being in the urban environment, right? Because that's where culture is, that's where the academy of music is, that's where you know all this stuff is, right? And so jobs. jobs, right? And so hey, you know, let's look at the price of ga- gasoline like probably in the late 60s, early 70s, it didn't, you know, yeah, you could drive back and forth to a c- central city to work and to hang out because it wasn't as expensive, but as, you know, cost of gasoline increased or whatever, the central city became much more valuable, right? So people started moving from the suburbs back into the, the urban city. Um, I don't know how we got into this discussion. I, I guess, I guess really, you know, I have my issue with gentrification because people are displaced or whatever and, um, you know, there's certain things about it um, that um, I think some people are hurt, you know, by it. Um, people who have, you know, spent a lot of time in these Absolutely. blighted Absolutely, they neighborhoods, are always they were, Right, you know. And
1: there are also, you know, fortunately, people that have been in these neighborhoods for a long time, that seen owned. their properties appreciate, okay. and now yeah. are moving on for different reasons. You know, some people think that uh, somebody's selling because they're taking advantage of the market, and it could be that they're retiring. It could be right. that they want to be in a warmer climate, but which you could they, blame that. Right,
0: but even if they're taking advantage of the market, that's a good thing. I mean, right, you know, Because take, they paid their, their dues. Out. They right.
1: they purchased now, when property values were lower, and they you the know, saw the I appreciation come to realization.
0: Is is you know those those instances where. Older people are being abused by people coming in showing up. Oh, here's a hundred, well, not a hundred thousand, here's five hundred thousand dollars in cash, you know, give me your building.
1: Um, which, which, Sydney, is a perfect segue for me to say what I'm about to say. Which, and this is what I've said many times over in the past five, ten years in the business, but people, whether you're thinking about selling, whether you're thinking about buying, whether you own property or just dream of own property, you should consult with. A professional, somebody who understands the market. It doesn't mean that you have to hire that person, but you should seek out the knowledge so that you're well-informed. And and I do see that happening where, unfortunately, investors were going door-to-door or calling house-to-house, and people were unaware of what the market values were. And, you know, the offer that was presented to them sounded very lucrative, right? Like, I'll give you half a million dollars. And people thought, oh, my God, that's great. I can definitely live off of that and I'll pay for your attorney too. Oh, wow, so nice of you. In reality, they're lining their own pocket, which, you know, technically, maybe they're not doing anything illegal, but the way that it always falls is, is we say like the caveat emptor, right? Or buyer beware. You have to do your due diligence. Um, when you're purchasing a property, it's up to you to make sure that everything is sound and as it should be before you enter into the transaction. Um, so I think, unfortunately, it gets reversed and sellers get taken advantage of. So that's what I always encourage people to inform themselves. Um, When I do meet with clients, I'm always encouraging them, you know, if you want to have your attorney look over this contract, if you have questions about anything, don't hesitate, you know, to follow up with questions, you know, don't feel that you have to sign anything, you know, just when I'm going over a presentation for you, for example, about market pricing, feel free to consult, multiple brokers and and get multiple opinions because at the end of the day that's going to better inform you Um, so I think that that's extremely important and just getting that awareness out there and I think we actually have spoken about this in past discussions just about how we can maybe you know create more community awareness um, through our own specialties and and what we know more about and getting that information to the public and being a public service. So you're a conscious capitalist too? Yes.
0: Okay, so you are very much about making sure that uh, there's fairness. There should be fairness. Yes. Right? Okay. That's that's very interesting. So so now what are what are some of the things? Um, I, I, I'm I live in New York. You know, I I live in New York, and so. Okay. So so Kristen. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering, um, I, I'm, I'm a New Yorker, um, and I have a household income of, let's say, 65000 70000 a year, which in New York, you know, is not a lot of money. As a matter of fact, it's, I'm probably low income at that income level, all right? But I love New York. It is the only place in the world for me. But at the same time, I am at that stage in my life cycle where I need to start thinking about things like investing in a home um, so that maybe 20 years from now, 30 years from now, I can sell it and, you know, reap the benefits of that price depreciation that always seems to happen in New York. Um, you know, You know, the market goes through its phases, but... Over time, property values in New York seem to to always They've increase. They've consistently gone up because on. people want to be here. So, but 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 sixty five thousand dollars. I don't see myself buying a limestone and in Crown Heights that's going for one point five two million. I don't see myself buying a brownstone in Bedford-Stuyvesant that might be going for one point seven or one point eight million. Um, what can I do? Do I have to move to Queens? Please don't tell me I got to move somewhere to Queens.
1: I think the first thing you have to decide if you're honestly thinking about investing is what is your risk tolerance, right? And they'll ask you that, a financial advisor would ask you that if you were going to invest in stocks. Um, so I think it's important to realize that people didn't just come in and buy a property saying, oh, we know it's going to appreciate in 30 or 40 years time. I think that's a mentality we have now, but it's not the mentality that people had you know, back in the 50s, for example. I mean yes they purchased for different reasons right because that was the american dream or because they wanted to control their expenses and you also see people today that want to do that so they maybe purchase something that's considered more affordable like an hdfc hd D- FC, f cooperative so mm-hmm. it's the housing development funding corporation um and it was created by the city um and it's been around for a while, right? Or
0: it's been
1: around for a long time. Yeah, there's, uh, so there's quite a few HDFCs throughout the city, but there's a cluster of them in places like the Lower East Side, uh, throughout Harlem, throughout the Upper East Side.
0: Would Co-op City be uh, uh, in the Bronx? Is that a HDFC? Or I'm
1: not 100% sure about that, so I don't want to say it is. But um, these are
0: co-ops.
1: So it's different than a traditional cooperative. Um, so how an HDFC is different Um, you would typically have an income guideline. And you also should understand that every HDFC is not the same. Every HDFC has its own particular rules, depending how they filed to become an HDFC. So there's income restrictions, income guidelines. So, for example, you may have a two-bedroom apartment where for one occupant, they have to make a baseline salary of somewhere between say 60 and 75,000 I'm just giving an example Uh, if there's two occupants there it might be a higher threshold so it might be somewhere like 90 to 100,000 for example uh, for the combined household income Um, so these restrictions are supposed to maintain the affordability of the project um, and then there's also restric- other restrictions that go along with it. So, for example, most of the time they have to be owner occupied. So you can't be purchasing them to say rent it out and make rental income off of it.
0: Well, wait a minute. But be- before you go on, um, but so but that, that restriction to keep it affordable seems to suggest that I won't. Re- if I buy, I will never recognize the profit potential that i might have recognized had i been in a position to buy a brownstone right the pres- the so again this s-
1: would be a low risk investment this would be something where you're controlling your expenses over the long run so this would probably be ideal for somebody who has a pretty fixed income that they don't think is likely to go up significantly over the course of their working life but knows that more than likely they're going to stay in the city and the The cost of living in the city is going to continue to go up, and they want to try to stabilize that and control that as best as possible. And, you know, like anything else, even if you're not making an income off of where you live, uh, you are building equity in what you own, right? So uh, it may not be as much equity as, say, owning a multifamily, but instead of paying off a a landlord's mortgage, you're paying into sort of a, a piggy bank, you could say. So you buy this co-op and eventually you can resell it. And again, there are other restrictions, so you do have to live there. Um, There is oftentimes what's called a flip tax associated with most HDFCs. Um, Could be somewhere like 30% of the profit. So again, you're gonna uh, sort of be disincentivized that way if you're looking for something with a higher return. But again, if you have a very fixed income and you want to find a way to invest and you want to find a way to control your expenses in a city that is, you know, becoming more and more unaffordable, then this is a good way for you to enter into the market.
0: Well, what determines the market value of one of these HFDCs? Or
1: HDFCs.
0: HDFCs. What determines the market value? Because you said there's a flip tax, right, which is you said maybe 30% of the profit, right? But it would seem to me that um, for this to, to remain affordable, And given the context of the circumstances the prospective investor buyer has, which is, you know, you said, you know, they they won't have a lot of income growth or whatever, right? Um, um, The goal would be for them to stabilize their expenses so that over time um, they don't have to worry about, you know, rental increases, that kind of thing, right? But let's say, you know, that buyer, right, decides to sell five years out. Does the fact that this is an HDFC um, depress the market value? Whereas, if values for in the, in the city generally were up twenty percent, the value for this HDFC would only be up five or ten percent.
1: Right. So, I mean, this is probably something that if somebody's really looking interested in looking into it it's going to be a more involved conversation than what we're going to be able to go over right today because right. there's a lot of factors involved. But there are generally uh, income, or sorry, not income caps, but price caps on these units. Um, so for example, an owner that I've worked with recently who owned an HDFC bought it for literally $10,000 and her price cap was at 415 When we brought it to market, we had people who wanted to pay over that.
0: But for $415, 415000 415000 Wait, she bought it for how much?
1: Like t- five or 10000 She was one how of the first owners of the HDFC back in the 90s, early 90s.
0: Whoa, so you're saying in the, in the 90s, this person spent $10,000 for this?
1: So she lived in a rental building that came together and decided to go to transform into an HDFC cooperative. And so for all of the residents living in the building at the time they have the right to first purchase the apartment that they're living in some people do it some people don't for her she did it she lived there for you know over 20 years she started to think about relocating south and having you know just a different lifestyle Um, so she brought it to market and at the end of the day these factors will affect the pricing but an HGFC is similar to other types of property in that the you know the, the supply and the demand are going to determine what the price is. So there was this cap, so we couldn't go over it, and people were actually willing to pay more, but unfortunately we can't.
0: But so she, we, she still had to give up 30% of
1: that profit. 30% of the profit. Which, so the price
0: was capped.
1: But actually one thing that we did with that particular situation, we got the buyer... To agree to pay the flip tax because the demand was more than what we could uh, legally charge so Um, there's always these other concessions that you can get um isn't that um um,
0: that's not illegal it's not illegal it does go against the the spirit of the rules
1: it's a loophole essentially
0: all right so so she was able to walk away with all her profit and theoretically i guess guess what you're saying is that in those instances where there's
1: so for example that building was in the east village and there was quite a bit of demand um and it wasn't something that we said okay you have to do this as a buyer but based on all of the interest level that's what ended up coming out but see but
0: now, now see that now that's what makes it suspicious right because it's like there's a lot of demand so you want it you know well let me just say you know everybody wants this but you know i have to pay a 30 percent tax on it Um uh, there's you know how everybody wants this you know it's a great deal that's why i have so many people who want to buy it boy, I have to pay a 30% tax. I mean, how can I distinguish between all these people that want to buy this? How do I pick one? Oh, my God, there's a 30%
1: tax I got to pay.
0: You know, doesn't that seem to...
1: So this is what makes the city more and more unaffordable, right? Wow. But unfortunately, this is how it works. But this is one way that somebody low-risk could get into investing. I think that was the point of the topic but could
0: a person with $65,000 pay 400 would they qualify for a $415,000 co-op loan
1: or so this is the other side of it right a lot of times these HDFCs are not financeable in this particular building it wasn't financeable so you have to either have a private loan you have to have, have gifted money from family or friends.
0: What's a private loan? Is that a thirty-year mortgage? A non-traditional
1: loan? loan. Yeah, so you're not going to get a mortgage from a conventional bank like but, Chase. But but, but
0: with this private or Wells
1: Fargo or
0: Would this private lender, give me a thirty-year deal? I thought private money was like very short. term I don't
1: know how the loan would be structured. That would be uh, based on the terms of the loan, but. Wow. Um, That's interesting. But see, you know, and and then that,
0: you know, that that also seems to suggest uh, another issue I have with, uh, you know, with with things, right? So, like, the city wants to preserve affordability, right? But um, they don't provide a means for someone to finance what might be an affordable purchase for them. You know what I mean? So it would seem like the city would try to create some kind of entity that could finance these purchases for people?
1: You would think so, but I don't think that they're as structured as a perfect world would be.
0: <laughs> mm. So so, so that's one. And, and are there any other investment opportunities for, for someone? Um, like, for example, would you advise someone who lives in New York, right, to say, okay, look, you can't afford to buy in New York, but let's say... Um, you can afford to buy, um, let's say in North Carolina somewhere. And Uh down there you could buy a property for let's say 200,000, maybe it's three units and you get, you know, $800 a month. So that's whatever it is, four hundred. Three times 8 is 24. So $2,400 a month and you back out this, that, and the other, right? Plus. There's a broker down there, or a real estate agent down there who could manage a property manager down there that can manage it for you. So, net, well, you don't get tax benefits anymore because the tax law changes. But let's say you know you might get a hundred dollars more. There's a possibility. So yes, you plan. could
1: invest in other markets um, for initial investors. I don't usually encourage it. I think that it's best to keep things local. Um, so if you are finding that there's really no options for you and you want to turn to that route then you made an excellent point in that they really need to take into consideration all of the factors, expenses, that would go into operating that property from afar. So, for example, you know, if I had a a client in the past who didn't even live that far away, he lived in Jersey, Central Jersey, um, which is far enough, right? Like, it's a place that you think you could get back to Brooklyn if something goes wrong, but sometimes you get those calls in the middle of the night that the boiler stopped working or that a pipe busted... Um, And you then either have to coordinate for contractors or uh, service individuals to be able to access and and repair the problem and give them permission to repair the problem and also to pay them, you know, not being there. Or you have to get up in the middle of the night and drive there and, and meet the person and fix the problem yourself. So especially for somebody who's just getting into investing and maybe wants to keep their expenses low, that's going to be difficult to do. Those are going to be extra things tacked on. So you'd have to make sure that, you know, it is enough of a spread that the return on it. And and the other thing is that when you don't live in that area, you're very likely not understanding the economics of that area. And so um, an interesting thing that I've seen lately, right, is, you know, for example, there's cities that are, you know, in the middle of, you know, very troubling uh, economic circumstances, not being able to balance budgets and things like that. So you hear of properties being offered for a dollar to try to incentivize people to move to those areas. So for example, like Detroit and Baltimore are two of those places right now. And there are people that are choosing to invest there, but it's also higher risk. So again, it goes back to really evaluating, yes, but really evaluating what level of risk tolerance you have. Because yes, it may be a dollar to purchase the property, but once you own it, somebody could go and trip on that property and you could get sued for much more than a dollar. So there's a lot of other factors that you really have to take into consideration. And being a brand new first time investor, there may be a lot that you just don't know and you you don't know to expect. So certainly in those circumstances, you're gonna wanna make sure that you align yourself with somebody who's very knowledgeable about the local market. and can can direct you to reputable vendors for services that you'll inevitably need in maintaining a property um, and taking into consideration those factors.
0: Well, Ms. Jock, thank you so much for coming today. We're running out of of time, so I want to thank you for coming in. It was a really good
1: discussion. Thank you so much for having me, Um, Sydney, and I appreciate you respecting my opinions and my beliefs and my perspective as I do respect yours as well.
0: Of course, of course. and I hope that uh, sometime in the future there are other topics, we'll uh, see topics that are uh, interesting and I want an expert opinion. I hope that you accept an invitation to have your expert opinion um, presented here um, again with the conscious capitalist. Um, so I really want to thank you. Um, I think there's a lot of information um, in this conversation. Um, a lot of insights and um, some really interesting things that uh, people can walk away with. So uh, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Sydney.
0: Um My listening audience, I'd like to thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoyed the conversation. But until next time, you've been listening to The Conscious Capitalist. I'm your host, Sydney Wayman. Until later, be good. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Conscious Capitalist, presenting your world in dollars and cents. Until next time, check us out at www.needtoknow.biz. Need to know, N-E-E-D, the number two, know, K-N-O-W, dot B-I-Z.